thank you that you never stopped chasing us down, even when we run far, far away from you. God, where we've been wandering, I just pray that you bring us back. In the name of Jesus, amen. Don't you hate that song? Seriously, though, don't you hate that song? Did you know that there are people who genuinely hate it? This was so surprising to me. I was hanging out with a worship leader friend the other day, and we're talking about this song. I was like, I really like that song. He goes, yeah, people really don't like that song. I was like, you're kidding. He knows the guy who wrote the song. He says, you know, it's weird. There's one word in there that really offends people. Can you guess what it is? Reckless. Everybody knows immediately, right? And I was like, really? And it just, it's one of those moments where you just think, the Christians, they drive me nuts. And I, I am one of the Christians, but they drive me, I drive me nuts. And it just, it, okay, explain it to me. And he says, well, it's, it's not as crazy as you think. I mean, the, if, if God is love, which the Bible says, and if God's love is reckless, then that would mean that God is reckless. And God is not reckless. That is, that's okay to say. God is not reckless. And I said, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, that's not okay. And then I kind of revised some assumptions. They're not just being randomly nitpicky. We do want to be careful about what we say about God and God's love and how God loves and what God does. Still feels really annoying, but I'm like, I'm, mo- I'm more on board than I was. And I said, so is the, like, is the artist like theologically sketchy? Like, is that kind of, he said, oh no, yeah. When he found out people were offended, he immediately came forward and said, oh, whoa, 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 no. Yeah. I'm not saying God is reckless. God is not reckless. I was pretty careful to say that God's love is reckless. And that's what, that's all I mean. That, that our experience of God's love in many ways is reckless. And I said, oh, well, that's, I think that's good enough for me. Like, did, did people move on? Like, was that, like, is that, you know, people just let that go and we'll take the, we'll take the song with a grain of salt? Yeah, no, this is 2018. What year do you live in? No, of course not. Like, people's pitchforks are ready. You know, the, the torches are lit. Let's go and let's burn something down. We're just, anything that offends us, we are ready to destroy. And I know that that's true because I told my wife that I was going to maybe talk about this thing with the song and she said, yeah, but there are better examples, don't you? Like, can't you think of anybody in politics or anybody in the world that we live in or any church or any particular theologian, somebody out there in the world that people would get really offended by, something that people make assumptions on? And I said, yeah. And then we talked about it. The more we talked about it, the more we realized any better example would be a lightning rod. And everyone in this room would immediately begin making assumptions and judging something and wondering what exactly I'm saying. And we would get distracted from the topic of, well, the danger of making assumptions by making dangerous assumptions. And so that seemed like a really problematic thing because this is really difficult for us to avoid in the world we live in today. And it was difficult, actually, in the story that we're going to be reading today. So turn with me in the book of Joshua, chapter 22. We're in a series on the book of Joshua. Uh, We're getting near the end. Joshua chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 9. And we're going to read a little. We'll probably skip some verses along the way because it's kind of repetitive. But Joshua 22, starting at verse 9. So, the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the Israelites at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go through the land of Gilead, their own land, by which they had taken possession by the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to the region near the Jordan that lies in the land of Canaan, the R, the G, and the M built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of great size. The Israelites heard that the R, the G, and the M had built an altar in the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region near the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the Israelites. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the Israelites gathered together at Shiloh to make war against them. 
Then the Israelites sent the priest, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, to the R, the G, and the M in the land of G, and with him the ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Gilead, every one of them ahead of the family among the clans of Israel. They came to the R, the G, and the M in the land of G, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this treachery that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away today from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar today in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor, from yet we are not even cleansed, and for which a plague came upon the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away today from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. We're going to skip to verse 21. Then the Rubai, uh, geez, gosh, then the R, the G, and the M said in an answer to the families of Israel, the Lord, God of gods. The Lord God of gods, he knows, let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith toward the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or offerings of well-being on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, we did it from fear. Then the time to come, your children might say to our children, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites, you Gadites, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. We're going to skip down to verse 28. And we thought, if this should be said to us or our descendants in the time to come, we could say, look at this copy of the altar of the Lord, which our ancestors made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When the priest Phinehas and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Manassites spoke, they were satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's this verse in Proverbs and it says, everybody sounds right until you hear the other side of an argument. It's really true. And wise people, I think, slowly figure this out. But for us to understand both sides of this argument, we're going to need a map. I expected, I expected like loud cheering and clapping just now, right? We're going to need a map. Yeah, maps. That's why I go to church. Maps. It's how I connect with the Lord. That's totally why, like this, that's what got pe- people into, no, that's, that's not at all true. But the last eight chapters or so of the book of Joshua have basically been a map in list form. So if you read them, it'll go like this. And such and such got this valley and this mountain and that city and that city and that city and that city and this river and that valley and this mountain, on and on and on. And that's the tribe of Dan. And then it goes through every single one of the 12 tribes. Or you can look at this map, and it saves you reading eight chapters of that. So maps are really nice sometimes. Uh, This is the Nile River over here to give you some sense of scale, right? This is Israel. And for our purposes, we don't really need to know where every one of the 12 tribes ended up. What we need to know is this, where the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the Nassites end up, which is to say, these guys are on the east side of the Jordan River. East side versus west side. Still a thing in the Bible. So the east side guys are on one side of a river, and everybody else is on the other side of the river. Thanks. 
And what happens in the course of the story is you start to realize that these people are divided by more than a river. And I know the feeling that we, a lot of the time, we live in a world that is more connected than it's ever been in history. It is amazing what you can do with a, the click of a mouse or the swipe of a finger, the number of people you can interact with. And despite all of that, we seem bizarrely disconnected from one another. More divided, maybe, than we've ever been before. Just huge wedges of assumption being driven between people all the time. It is exhausting when you start to think about it. And that's, that's what happens in this story. There's a lot of assumptions. The guys on the east side of the river have been fighting for the people on the west side of the river throughout the book of Joshua. Chapter 1, they start fighting for the people of Israel. They fight alongside them. Brothers alongside brothers. They struggle with them. And they do it all the way until this chapter, chapter 22. You can just go black, by the way. Um, they do it all the way until this chapter, and in some verses we didn't read, the first ones, Joshua is talking to these people, and he says, way to go. I mean, you guys have really understood what community is about. Community is about fighting alongside people when maybe you're not getting anything out of it. They're fighting for land that they're never going to occupy. They're trying to help these people claim their land. And sometimes in relationships, we show up even when we're not getting a whole lot out of it. Sometimes in churches, right, or in small groups, or just with good friends, there are seasons and times where you do a lot of serving and you don't really get a lot back. It's one of the reasons we show up every week, and some of you guys are really, really good at this. Showing up and setting up, showing up and hanging out with kids so that you can also be in worship on other weeks. It's an amazing thing when you start to really understand that that's what community is about, that we sometimes fight battles for other people. That's why we show up. And Joshua was talking to these people, and he says, you guys really understand what community is. But the battle's over, so go home. Good job. Go with God's blessing. Go home. Way to go. Just make sure that you follow God when you get home. And so these people, they, they start wandering back from Shiloh, and they're going to go across the river. But just before they go across the river, in verse 10, they build an altar. An altar, it says, of great size, huge, massive in appearance, conspicuous. And then they go into their own land. And the people of Israel hear about it, and they get really upset. And that is confusing to you, because when I was reading this, you didn't even notice maybe the word altar. You're still trying to figure out who are the Reubenites and what are the R and the G and the N. It's, there's a lot of bewildering stuff going on. We don't get triggered by the word altar. But if I'd said, so there's this Christian leader, and just before they crossed the river, he gave a speech about the theory of evolution. Oh, right? If someone's going to react to that, that is going to be an issue. It doesn't matter what he's saying. Just the word is enough for us to go, ooh, yeah, people are going to have a problem with that. There's going to be assumptions flying and judgments and some folks are going to take stands. Somebody made a tweet just before he went across the river about climate change. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a thing. They're, they built an altar just before they went across the river. Anybody else reading this story thousands of years ago? Oh, yeah, that's going to be an issue. They built an altar and the people of Israel get really upset. Altars have a very specific purpose. It's really just a pile of rocks or a pile of dirt. But the purpose of an altar is to worship God, to make a sacrifice, to pray, to connect with God. Any God, any God at all. And the people of Israel already have an altar, and it moves with this thing called the tabernacle. It's kind of like a mobile church that has moved all through the desert. And it doesn't matter if you live in the north part of Israel, the south, the east, or the west. It doesn't matter if there's a river or a mountain between you and the tabernacle. If you want to go talk to God, you go to the tabernacle, you go to the altar, you pray. You don't just build your own altar, because if you build your own altar, well, then you're saying, I don't need the people of Israel, and I don't need the God of Israel. I can make my own kind of version of that God that kind of suits me, a tailor-made God that meets all of my needs. 
nice and individualistic. I can pray to him all the time. He'll do what I want. He cares about what I care about. And the more you worship a God like that, the more you really are just worshiping you. That's what the Bible will tell you time and time again, that, that worship is something that happens in community. And it's also something that happens alone, but you can't get rid of one or the other. You get into real trouble when that happens. So the people of Israel can't just build their own altar because well, they'll get into some real trouble. You don't just build it anywhere out there because odds are you're going to worship a completely different God. One of the gods maybe of the Canaanites that they've been working so hard to get rid of and to destroy. And so these people, the instant they're done fighting, they walk away and they build an altar and people freak out. They've absolutely, there's no context. The narrator doesn't tell us why, doesn't give us any explanation for the, the motivations, why exactly they're building this altar. He waits until way, way later in the story so that you and I have an opportunity to overreact. That is the whole point of this story. We are supposed to overreact, but we don't because we don't know what an altar is. But that's the thing about, that's the thing about assumptions and about relationships. You get into trouble when you make assumptions in relationships. Can the married people say amen? You get into trouble when you make assumptions in relationships. It's just, it's true. And the longer you're in any relationship, the more you start to realize this. But it's not just true for married folks. It's true in any relationship. I would wager uh, that if your mom drives you nuts, or if there's some employee or some friend who sends you passive-aggressive texts, and you showed it to us, we would not understand, right? We'd see it and say, that seems kind of nice. Oh, no, but you don't know, she's... What she's doing here is this. And you, wow, that's a whole lot of subtext that I did not see there. And it's possible you're right, but it's also possible you're just making assumptions based on how she's acted in the past or you've acted in the past or whatever. Well, assumptions can really cause problems in relationships. It's the plot of every 90s sitcom, right? It just happens over and over and over again. And it's something you learn when you're in a premarital counseling class or you know, if you actually have done premarital counseling with people or hung out with folks in hospitals and things like that, you feel really stupid when you sit with somebody who's crying because they've just been told they're going to die. And you, you say, I see, I see you've got some tears in your eyes. Can you help me understand why you're so sad? You think, I sound like a robot who's an idiot. And then this person who's crying, who's just found out they're going to die, says, yeah, I'm really angry with my brother. That, that would not be how I would react to this right now. I've just, I made a huge assumption, and I'm really glad I asked that question. And more and more as time goes on, I've learned that I need to ask questions of my wife when she's upset, because maybe she's not mad at me, or maybe she is, but at a completely different thing. Or maybe I've been assuming that she knows that I've been really nice, and she didn't even notice. And I'm really upset, and I haven't talked to her about what's been going on. And yeah, sure enough, assumptions really get us into some trouble. And one of my favorite examples of this, I was uh, doing some premarital counseling, with a couple. I'm sharing this story by permission. I would never do that otherwise. But I, I was in the premarital counseling session with these couples, and some of you know this because you've done it with me, but I have this thing where I ask people, so if you had a magic wand and you could wave it over your relationship, you have five wishes, what would you wish for? I wish blank. And the guy has written down, I wish that you would stop making tuna casserole. You have five wishes, right? I mean, that's to me, seems bizarre. Like, a recipe is not on my list. And her immediate reaction, what? Like, just outraged in that moment. And I, hang on, we're really trying to listen to what he's saying. Try not to, try not to react. Try not to make assumptions. Just ask him why. So you don't, you don't like when I make it? No. Can, can I ask you why? I just, I've never really liked it. Tears, just immediately. So, and again, I'm like, now why are you so, like, again, it's just, it's bizarre to me that the tuna casserole is this emotionally charged. And I'm sitting, and so she's in tears, and he's like, I should not have said, I'm like, no, 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 we got to talk about what's really going on. So 
Well, the thing is, I've just, I've never, I've never really liked it. And again, sobbing harder now. I've never, it reminds me of my mom's tuna casserole, and she used to make it for us when we were kids. And at this, she sort of makes a weird sound. And I never liked my mom's tuna casserole. And she sort of looks at him. And she's still, it sounds like she's crying, but now she's just making a weird sound. And he says, yeah, just, I, I don't like it. I don't like tuna that much, but I definitely don't like this. And that's just, it, and all of a sudden, she just starts laughing so loudly. And now it's, it's very, we've gone through a roller coaster of emotion. And she's laughing. And I, he gets, starts to get offended, like she's laughing at him. And he's like, no, 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 that's not what's happening. No, you don't, you don't know the story. When we first started dating, and it started to get serious, I went to your mom because I really, I'm not a very good cook, and I wanted to find out some recipes that she used to make for you when you were a kid so that I could make you feel kind of loved and at home and really, you know, just kind of do something your mom used to. I was looking for a way to be nice, and, and she gave me this recipe. She said she used to make it all the time for you when you guys were kids, and when I made it for you the first time, you said, this is great. I love this. Thank you so much. And he says, yeah, I was, I was just being nice. We were kind of early on in the relationship. Like, I did, you know, you're not very good cook, and you said that, and so I was trying to, you know. And, and then she's, she's been making this for years, and she says, I don't even like it. I don't like tuna. Like, we, we've both been assuming that we're making the other person happy, and we're both living this life that no one likes based on assumptions that no one is challenging and no one is asking any questions. It's gotten wildly out of control. And that's what happens in this story. It gets wildly out of control. They hear the word altar, and the people of Israel start talking. Can you believe these people built an altar? The instant they walk away from us, they've started worshiping these other gods. They hear about it. They talk about it. It's so big. It's so outlandish. They built it on our side of the river. They're outraged. Now, for me, I have questions already about what's going on in this, but they don't ask any questions. Instead, they assemble a war party, right? There is an army ready to go and destroy people who five minutes ago were in the army with us. We were fellow combatants. You are our brothers and sisters. We are going to destroy you because we are sure that you don't know what an altar is, right? That, it has gotten wildly out of control. No one's asking any questions, and they bring together 10 elders from Israel, heads of families, right? That's what it says. And Phineas, Phineas is not a negotiator. If you read other books of the Bible, Phineas is an executioner. This dude is bad news. He will absolutely kill people who do not follow God. So they've gotten all these people together. It's very intimidating. They come to the people of Israel, and it's just accusation after accusation. Again, they're not asking questions. The assumptions have sort of built on one another, and everyone's so isolated in what they are sure is true, that there's no possibility of changing your worldview. And this happens to us all the time. Right? It's the world that we live in, and you see it in friends of yours. You might see it in all sorts of other people. You probably don't see it in you because, well, that's who we are as people. Uh, but there's this thing called the filter bubble. You know about this? It's TED Talks and things like that. It, basically, we're talking about um, Google and Facebook, that these things show us what we want to see. They tell us what we want to hear. And they do that. It's part of their business model, which means really good things. I find what I'm looking for quickly because the machine has guessed what I want to hear. It's also a bad thing because it means that I'm going to see something when I Google a phrase, and you're going to see something different. We're not going to find the same thing. And so what that means is if you're a particularly conservative person and you Google things, you'll have conservative assumptions that meet conservative media, that meet conservative assumptions, and it becomes this downward spiral where you just get confirmed in everything you've assumed and believed about the world and the other side and these things. Same thing happens on the liberal side. Liberal assumption meets liberal media, meets liberal outreach, meets, and it goes on and on and on. And people just stop talking to each other. We're unable to have conversations about the sorts of things that divide us because we have all sorts of assumptions about what those people think about me or what those people say about people like me. And if you try to talk about something as charged as sexuality or Donald Trump 
or immigration or abortion, whatever it might be, you realize that nobody's listening to each other, that people are just lobbing slogans and bumper stickers at each other, and everyone's just sort of waiting to hear that thing that'll let them see I knew you were one of those people. I've just been waiting for you to confirm my assumption about you. No one is challenging their way of looking at the world. No one is asking questions. Me, I have questions. I'm not that close to the situation, so I can ask questions. I look at this, and I think it's weird that they built an altar at all. Weird that five minutes after they've been fighting for this God, they decided they don't want to anymore. That seems out of character, if nothing else. What changed is one of the questions. Why build a big one? If you build an altar, right, the whole point is to sacrifice things. The bigger it is, harder it is to use. You have to lift a big old heavy thing up onto it before you can light a fire. Why build a giant altar? And why build a giant altar across a river from where you live? That's bizarre. Why build it in Israel's land? If you ever want to use it, you have to go across the river. That doesn't make any sense. I have lots of questions about why these guys built this altar here, but Israel has no questions. Have you not had enough of sin? Are you not tired of this? We are tired of this. Do you not remember Achan? Do you not remember Peor? Do you not remember the plagues? Do you not know that if you do this today, God will wreak havoc on us tomorrow? And there is, I think, some really good concern in the midst of this, that God cares that we're faithful, that God cares that we worship. But the problem is they don't realize that the other side has exactly the same concern. The reaction of these people with this massive series of accusations, with this sort of turn or burn kind of mentality, is, whoa, 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 no. Yeah, the Lord is God of gods. The Lord, God of God. They say it again, right? No, we we are not disagreeing about who is God. We are not disagreeing. You've made some assumptions about who we are and why we made No, you have badly misunderstood this. We want to set the record straight. We did not build this altar for sacrifices. And they start listing different kinds. Not for grain, not for animals, not for well-being. Just over and over. No sacrifice. There's no loophole. I promise you, we were not doing this for that reason. We we did it because we were scared that one day you guys would look at us across the river and say, you're not a part of Israel. You're across the river. And you would tell that, and our children would begin to believe you, and they would stop believing in this God that we love and serve, and that you would somehow forget that we love and serve you. So we built this as a witness between you and us, literally between you and us, so that you could see it and we could see it. And we built this kind of like a statue, a monument, a replica, not for sacrifice, but something to look at, so that we could remember that God really does have an altar in his tabernacle, that it really is going, it's worth going and worshiping the God of Israel, that that we really did serve alongside you, that we really did win this land with you. And the people of Israel in that moment are, oh, satisfied. And it's just over all of a sudden. Wouldn't that be incredible if you could just have a conversation with someone that was nuanced and say, this is who I am, this is why I believe what I believe. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, I made some assumptions. Wouldn't it be incredible if that was our reaction in the midst of some bitter, angry fight with somebody? And they start saying, hang on, I don't think you're really listening to me. You go, you know what, you're right. I'm not listening to you. Go ahead. And then you actually listened, then we actually listened to what was going on around us. It might avert absolute disaster. Because that's what happens in this. It averts disaster. Because people are just so ready to fight. There's this, um, do you know what an autoimmune disease is? Some of you do. Okay. Uh, some, actually, someone in our church actually suffers from an autoimmune disease, a lot like lupus. Um, The idea behind an autoimmune disease, it's very weird. An autoimmune disease is not really a disease. 
It's a moment where your immune system gets really intense. It's sort of just angry and ready to fight somebody. And antibodies and cells are just running around like, I'm going to punch somebody in the face. And there's no disease. There's no one to hit. And so all of a sudden, one of the cells goes, the lungs. And they go, yeah. And they just they race toward the lungs with pitchforks. And, and you think, hang on. Those are, those are our lungs, though. Like, that's, those are my lungs. Yeah. Doesn't matter. They're going to start destroying the lungs. This is the ugly, evil thing about an autoimmune disease. The body is at war with itself. The body makes weird assumptions, is so ready to fight that it's going to rip itself apart. And this is absolutely true in the church today. Paul repeatedly in the New Testament will say, look, marriage is like a body. Nobody hates their own body. The church is like a body. Nobody hates their own body. Some people are hands, some people are eyes. No foot ever says, I'm going to kick myself in the chest. That never happens. Paul says, that would be crazy, Paul says. And yet, I think we live in a crazy time. When there's fires going on in California, there's a big church in California, um, in Redding. And some people got on social media and started accusing that church, Christians, started accusing that church of refusing to take in refugees and victims of the fire. Just all of a sudden, can you believe these people won't take in all these victims of the fire? That's outrageous. That is outrageous. Like, I heard about it. That's outrageous. Why would they not let people stay at this church? And then the church put out a statement and said, yeah, I I don't know where that came from. We actually offered the Forest Service and the fire department and the city to take in refugees. And they said, you're surrounded by forests, so that's a bad idea. You guys shouldn't even be there. Our church isn't a good place to run in the midst of a fire. It's flammable. Get out of our church. That's, That's why we're not hosting people. But the Christians were against the Christians because we were so ready, so ready to fight one another. We're well, I think we're looking for an enemy. And that, that's not the worst thing in the world, to know that, that we really do have an enemy out there in the world. But the problem, I think, in this story is that the enemies have been defeated, right? Peace happened. And because there is peace, all these old soldiers are just ready to fight. I've, somebody needs to get punched in the face. They just, they're, they're just ready for this moment. And I think in the church today, we realize that we do have an enemy, and he is moving, and he is doing some really terrible, evil, ugly things underneath the surface. But we're so ready to fight that we're not picking our battles well. And we're so ready to make assumptions that we start, well, eating our own, that we start actually destroying the body in ways that make no sense theologically. And one of the things I think we've got to start doing is listening to one another, the way that they somehow, by the grace of God, end up listening to one another. A tragedy is averted, and it's amazing. One of the things we also have to start doing is listening to the words of Jesus, who repeatedly say things like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Somebody hits you in the face, turn the other cheek. Somebody wants you to go a mile, go the extra mile. Time and time and time again, we see how Jesus deals with his enemies. Not as somebody who makes assumptions, not as somebody who damns and condemns and destroys, but as someone who's willing to say, okay, if you really want to attack me, you can attack me. If you really want to destroy me, you can destroy me. I am willing to lay down my life even for you. You and I, who are followers of Jesus, have to be followers of Jesus. That means we have to watch the way we talk to one another, but it means we have to watch the way we talk to the world around us. And one of the places that starts is we have to be careful about making assumptions. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are blown away by your grace and by your mercy, by all of the different ways that you love us. And God, we know that people in your time made all sorts of assumptions about who you were and what you were about. And as a result, they couldn't hear what you had to say. Oh, this guy hangs out with sinners. Couldn't hear what you had to say. It was inexplicable. And time and time again, you'd say, why aren't you people listening to me? I want you people to listen to me. And God, we're here today because we want to listen to you. Jesus, we love you, and we know that you love us. 
Help us to be witnesses in the world. Help us to be people who know that the body should love the body, or the body should love the world. People in the church who truly do listen to the world around us, who are truly, truly trying to bring peace inside and outside of your mission. In the name of Jesus, amen.